Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Israel stands accused of genocide in the International Court of Justice. Now South Africa lays out its argument. I'm joined by Omer Bartov, a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. Then more on the crisis in Israel and Gaza, as well as fears of a wider war. I speak to Alon Pincus, a former advisor to several Israeli prime ministers. Also ahead, the Ukrainian ambassador to Washington tells Walter Isaacson why her country desperately needs U.S. support. And they discuss if it's time for peace talks with Russia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. I'm Bianca Goldriga in New York, sitting in for Christiane Amanpour. Hearings have begun in the International Court of Justice that could change the course of Israel's war in Gaza. South Africa arguing today that Israel is committing, quote, genocidal acts against the Palestinian people. It's an extraordinary case that has its roots in October 7th, when a brutal attack was launched by Hamas, killing more than 1,200 Israelis and seeing hundreds more kidnapped. In the three months since, Israel has waged a devastating war on Hamas in Gaza. According to Palestinian statistics, 1% of Gaza's population has been killed, and many, many more have been displaced. Today, South Africa told the court 17 judges that history will be made by their verdict. This is not a moment for the court to sit back and be silent. It's necessary that it assert its authority and itself order compliance with the obligations under the Genocide Convention. Indeed, it's hard to think of a case in recent history which has been so important for the future of international law and of this court. The U.S. has called the accusation of genocide, quote, meritless. And tomorrow, Israel will lay out its defense against the charge, which it strongly denies. Melissa Bell has the details in this report from The Hague. Free, free Palestine! Passionate protests on the streets outside of court. Free, free Palestine! As inside, South Africa laid out the details of their case. Even an attack involving atrocity crimes can provide any justification for or defense to breaches to the convention. Israel has denied all accusations, calling the case a, quote, blood libel. South Africa is accusing Israel of breaching the 1948 Genocide Convention through its military response to the Hamas attack, which it says has killed more than 23,000 people. At least 200 times it has deployed 2,000-pound bombs in southern areas of Palestine designated as safe. Israeli soldiers in but South Africa is also accusing Israeli leaders of making no distinction between Hamas and the civilians of Gaza. The genocidal intent behind these statements is not ambiguous to the Israeli soldiers on the ground. Indeed, it is directing their actions and objectives. These are the soldiers repeating the inciting words of their prime minister. The moment welcomed by international groups in support of the Palestinian people 
with many noting the importance of Israel's presence too, there to defend its response to the Hamas attacks on October 7th that killed at least 1,200 people. The fact that they're here, that they're represented, and that they're presenting their formal response to South Africa's case is significant and suggests that they attach legitimacy to the court. Israel will be making its case here on Friday, but just after the South African delegation had finished, a spokesman for Israel's foreign ministry dismissed their claims as groundless and false, accusing them of being the representatives of Hamas in court. An effective realization but South Africa's goal, a call for the world court to order Israel to stop the war. The consequences of not indicating clear and particularized specific provisional measures would, we fear, be very grave indeed for the Palestinians in Gaza who remain at real risk of further genocidal acts. The South African Justice Minister ending that report from Melissa Bell there. Well, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has come out strongly against the case today, saying the, quote, hypocrisy of South Africa screams to the high heavens. Join me now for more on this is Omer Bartov, an Israeli-American professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. Professor, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. So we should note that proving genocide is a very high threshold to meet. But what South Africa, at least in its initial claims here and request, is, call, is calling for the plausibility of genocide to be determined by this court. Can you explain the difference in the, the lowered standards here? for the plausibility to be ruled. Yes, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, so as you say, the, the Genocide uh, Convention created a, a, a law that is uh, difficult to prove because you need to prove both intention and then the implementation of that intention to destroy a particular national, ethnic or racial group as such. Uh, but what um, is uh, what South Africa is calling for initially is for actions for for um, um, a particular action that would uh, prevent Israel from going on with the kind of violence that is being perpetrated in Gaza now, while the case itself is being deliberated, and that's on the on the basis of saying that uh, one cannot wait. Uh, in this state of emergency until a final decision is made, which could take a year, even longer than a year. What do you make of their evidence and what was proposed and outlined today that we heard from South Africa? Well, I must say, first of all, that the filing, which is 84 pages long, is extremely detailed um, and includes a sort of long history of uh, not only of what is happening in Gaza now, but the history of the Israeli occupation in Gaza and the West Bank. And the presentation uh, was very powerful. Um, and it made a strong case, at least for the need for such a distinguished body as the ICJ to deliberate this case, which is, of course, a really rare moment. Uh, there's only one other case uh, a few years ago 
when such an accusation was made by one country against another of uh, committing genocide that was deliberated by the ICJ. So this is extremely rare. And I think it's a very important uh, moment also generally in international law. Can you talk about how previous case law will be factored in by these judges in their ruling for this case? Well, they they don't have a huge amount of right. uh, previous case law. <laughs> that's that's the whole thing. Um, in 2019, uh, the Gambia uh, filed a complaint uh, against Myanmar, um, and that was an important moment. It, that's about the, the the genocide against the Rohingya. And that's an important point because two years later, the ICJ found that uh, Myanmar had, uh, sorry, that the Gambia had a right to file a complaint against another country perpetrating genocide, although it had nothing to do with it itself. And that's according to the Genocide Convention itself. So this is one important precedent. The second uh, precedent, which is somewhat different, is that Ukraine lodged a complaint against Russia, not for perpetrating genocide against it, but for justifying the Russian invasion against Ukraine um, as uh, action against uh, so-called alleged Ukrainian genocide. Um, And that too was uh, debated by the ICJ. As we mentioned, the plausibility of genocide, the bar for that, to prove that it is lower than genocide as a whole, but that being said, because this is a longer term case that that we are witnessing, we're just focusing on an injunction that may come in the next week or two, but this case could go on for years to prove whether or not Israel has committed genocide. In that case falls the question of intent, as we've already laid out. So Israel's going to argue, we're going to hear from them tomorrow. They're saying that they acted in self-defense, that they gave warning ahead of time before they would launch their campaigns and some of their, um, their bombings, and that they were targeting Hamas members and not civilians. And they say civilians, like in all war, are collateral damage, unfortunately, and that Hamas is using civilians as human shields. What do you make of that argument? Is it an effective one? Well, this is the argument that they will make. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, even in the last few days, uh, Israeli politicians have been making very different statements. Uh, which were made already at the beginning, which are cited in the South African complaint, um, um, that uh, Gaza has to be destroyed, uh, that Gaza should be treated as Amalek, uh, that is, that that everyone should be killed there, uh, that it should be flattened. And most recently, uh, several Israeli ministers have talked about the need to remove the population of Gaza from Gaza itself, uh, or to encourage them to leave. Uh, and so the issue of, in, of intent, which is usually very hard to prove and which the, uh, the Israelis will argue tomorrow uh, is, is not correct, has actually been expressed uh, in many other, in, 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 in the last three months over and over again. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it will be, this is the, the point they will make. They will also say that they are trying not to target populations, but the evidence on the ground is that there has been a great deal of indiscriminate bombing and destruction uh, of entire areas, actually flattening, as they threaten, flattening entire areas, especially in northern Gaza, uh, and that would be, you know, hard to disprove. 
Yeah, it's interesting because even those who are defending Israel say one of the weakest arguments here is what you just laid out, some of the comments by uh, members of the Knesset, members of this government. Um, Perhaps that's why we heard Prime Minister Netanyahu in English yesterday come out and release a statement saying that they do not support, this government does not have a policy of displacing the Palestinians and that they, in fact, will be living in Gaza after the war. Clearly, there is a lot of pressure there. Um, Israeli uh, journalist Anshul Pfeffer even wrote, Israel isn't committing a, geno a genocide, but it has genocidaires within its government. Um, how damaging is that for Israel, a democracy, which as defenders would say, listen, we can't control every single thing that our um, members of government say, that these are backbenchers, that they're not part of the war cabinet. What do you make of that argument? Well, first of all, you, you will know that Netanyahu made that statement in English, yes. and he hasn't made it in Hebrew. Uh, and he's speaking for both sides of his mouth. Uh, it is not only all kind of backbenchers who are making these statements, it's the Minister of Defense, it's the Prime Minister, it's top generals in the military. Uh, these are actual decision makers. So that's one thing that has to be taken into account. Um, what does it mean in terms of Israeli democracy? We are in Israel in a very precarious uh, uh, condition because Israel right now um, it has has sort of put itself in in a position where the prime minister uh, cannot make a decision on what will happen after this operation is over or how you define success of this operation, because any decision that he makes about the next day, what will happen later, may cause his cabinet to fall, and because he's either in, under indictment, he may end up in jail. And so his own interest is, A, not to make any decision uh, about the next day, and B, uh, basically to let the war go on. Uh, not only in Gaza, but as we know, also things are deteriorating quickly along the, the Lebanese border with mm -hmm. Hezbollah. Uh, and so the, the best thing for Israeli democracy and for this war would be for this cabinet to be removed. It has already entirely discredited itself by what happened on October 7th, um, as has the military. But it, of course, has no interest in leaving power. And the military declared three, two main goals in that war, which is to destroy Hamas as a political and military organization and to free the hostages. And it has been fighting for three months now, and it has failed in doing that. Uh, and uh, in that sense, if there is no political horizon, then the killing will just go on. So, as we mentioned, an injunction is expected from the court in a matter of days, a week or two, perhaps. Um, you know, at this point, what Israel's argument is going to be, what their defense is going to be. We heard from the, the prosecution today. How do you expect this court to rule? Well, we don't know. The, the, the assumption is, I suspect it's correct, but we, we, we really can't say, that the court will not call for a ceasefire, but rather will call on Israel, A, to be much more discriminate in its military actions, and B, to make sure that much more humanitarian uh, help is being brought into Gaza, where there's now a major problem 
of not only uh, uh, the, the, the 23,000 or so who were killed, but also famine and of epidemics. Um, I suspect this is what they may come up with. And then, of course, uh, the court has no way to enforce this. Uh, and it may have to go to the Security Council. And the Security Council uh, may be facing a veto by the United States. Surely we'll be facing a veto by the United States, which already called this case meritless. What about the argument that separate from th this court case that, that Israel is saying, listen, we've allowed for more aid trucks from the, thanks to Western pressure, especially from the United States, to go in and that now just days ago they've announced a new phase, uh, a less intense phase in this war. Do you expect to hear those arguments from the Israelis tomorrow? And will the court factor that in? Uh, it's possible. I don't know whether they'll talk about the third phase that they're implementing, uh, but they will probably talk about uh, increased humanitarian aid. But that humanitarian aid is completely insufficient. And the, the, the third phase means that there will be operations precisely in that area where most of the population of Gaza is now concentrated. Um, and so any military action there is bound to A, bring many more civilian losses and B, just make the humanitarian situation even worse. We know that it's deteriorating now. We know that there is not enough uh, aid coming in. Uh, there mm -hmm. are about 200,000 civilians in northern Gaza who seem to be getting no help at all, and there's very little reporting on that. And so I don't think that this will wash, but maybe the court will take that into account. And we know the majority of the victims and those killed are our children in this war, sadly, as well. Um, I'd be remiss not to just bring up the the optics of this and the fact that the Genocide Convention was established in 1948 after the Holocaust and the murder uh, of six million Jews, the establishment of the State of Israel followed uh, the Holocaust as well. Um, Israel has accused the UN, as you know, of bias for many years, uh, has accused South Africa of bias for being uh, more sympathetic to the Palestinians. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, um, where do those arguments sit in this case? Well, you know, I'd say that there are two major ironies here. One is, as you say, that, of course, uh, the genocide convention, um, which was pushed by Raphael Lemkin, who was himself a Jewish po Polish mm -hmm. lawyer who ended up in America, invented the term, uh, was uh, supported uh, largely because of what happened in World War II, and particularly the mass murder of the Jews, the genocide of the Jews. Uh, and that Israel now would stand accused of that is a very sad moment. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be if, if, if there is enough evidence. And the second is that it's South Africa that is lodging this complaint. And South Africa was a country that became a pariah country in the international community because of the apartheid regime there and has a kind of long story with the state of Israel, which was one of the only countries that worked together with the apartheid regime uh, while South Africa was otherwise uh, isolated from the rest of the international community. Uh, and for South Africa to be bringing this against Israel is, to my mind, it's a very important moment, of course, but it's also very sad because in some ways you would have thought that South Africa and Israel would be on the same page and not opponents. 
Professor, really appreciate your time, your expertise. I could talk to you for hours. Unfortunately, we're out of time for now, but of course, we'll be watching as this um, trial continues tomorrow as well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as the arguments are heard in The Hague, the bombs keep dropping in the Middle East and fears keep growing of a wider war. It's something U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is trying to counter with a whistle-stop tour of the region, where he's also calling for a reduction in civilian casualties. Here he is in Cairo this morning. We're, we're doing everything we can with very strong regional support, again, to make sure that this doesn't spread, that there can't be a repeat of October 7th, uh, but also that this conflict comes to an end. It is vital that as long as this is going on, every effort be made to make sure that civilians who are caught in a crossfire of Hamas's making don't continue to suffer. For more on this, I'm joined by former diplomat Alan Pincus. He served as Israel's consul general in New York from 2000 to 2004 as an advisor to two Israeli prime ministers as well. Alon, welcome to the program. Um, I'm not sure how much you heard of my conversation leading into this about the um, ICJ hearing today, part one of two days. I know that it has riveted Israel, that everyone has been glued to the television watching it. I'm just curious to get your reflections personally um, as a politician, as an expert in this field, and as an Israeli. Well, I'm not an expert on that field, Biana, but I, I did hear, I did hear yeah. the... No, no, no. I did hear your uh, interview of Omer Beltov in its entirety. It was a, uh, an excellent interview, very illuminating, very, you know, very informative. Um, you know, there's very little that I can add to that. Uh, there have been several things that Israel could have done to avert uh, this genocide accusation. I mean, it's going to be very difficult to prove genocide because, as you know, and I think Professor Omer Beltov uh, referred to it, uh, you need to prove intent. And intent is very difficult. You can barely uh, prove intent uh, on the dropping of two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You can barely prove intent on Allied bombings of Dresden or German bombings of Coventry. Um, uh, surely it's going to be difficult to uh, uh, show intent here. But what made this complicated, and you and, and, Bo uh, and Omer Batov both re uh, refer to it, is those reckless, moronic, idiotic statements by Israeli politicians mm -hmm. uh, um, on all sides uh, making all these, you know, ridiculous uh, um, ideas, you know, flatten Gaza, burn Gaza, nuke Gaza, uh, 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 re relocate the population of Gaza. 
So this, this is taken very seriously. You saw the Prime Minister speak in English, you, you alluded to it earlier. Um, he sent a nemesis of his, uh, former Supreme Justice, Supreme Court uh, uh, Justice and President of the Supreme Court, Aaron Barak. That was not uh, an easy thing for him to do. Because if there is an injunction or so-called a provisional ruling, um, it could then move to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, where Mr. Netanyahu, among other people, may be uh, um, indicted. So it's, it it's, it's a big deal that I think will dictate moves from now on. The International Criminal Court, I'm glad you brought this up, because for those who may be watching and saying, what, what about Hamas's uh, role in, in all of this and being tried? That's where Hamas officials would, in theory, be tried. The International Criminal Court, that, that goes after yes. individuals as opposed to the International Court of Justice, w which really focuses on nations. Uh, again, this is a hypothetical, but w when you talk about some of these outlandish irresponsible, reckless statements that, that have been made by those in this government, uh, you know, there, there are a few ways to, to defend it other than saying that they're not part of the war cabinet or, you know, this is a democracy, can't control what people say. Um, if Prime Minister Netanyahu wanted to, could he have? Could he have put his foot down? Could he have made that statement that he made in English yesterday in Hebrew? Uh seven times in the last week, 30 times in the last month, and 90 times in the last three months. He should have and he could have, and he refrained from doing so for his own political expediency. Um, you know, I, I, the only line of defense, Biana, that I could see Israel using with these statements uh, being part of the uh, application or the indictment is insanity. If, if, if you know, if, if, if Israel's um, advocates say that these ministers are borderline insane and cannot differentiate between good or bad, right and wrong, maybe that's a working line of defense. Otherwise, I think they'll focus not on the statements, but on the more substantive issue of intent. Yeah. Uh, but again, like you said at the end, um, this could, uh, uh, if the ICJ uh, issues an injunction, again, a, provision, a provisional ruling, uh, this can go back to the Security Council. And yes, the U.S. will probably, most likely, 99%, veto it, but it would further isolate the U.S. It would further uh, uh, pressure the Biden administration. Secretary Blinken's visit here was not successful. Uh, he had some very difficult uh, um, and unpleasant exchanges with his hosts in this country, in Israel, uh, particularly with the uh, Prime Minister, with Mr. Netanyahu. So I see this all converging into a point where the U.S. is going to, it is in the process of considering, but the U.S. will actually uh, change policy. And none of this, uh, as you noted, benefits President Biden going into an election year where his poll ratings have already been pretty low as it stands. I want to, before I get on to the, the other issues in the region there, most notably Lebanon, uh, I want to have you respond to an Axios report that based on, on this court trial and the ICG uh, court case that uh, cable was sent by the foreign ministry in Israel to its ambassadors around the world, demanding that local leaders, quote, publicly and clearly state that your country rejects the outrageous, absurd and baseless allegations made against Israel. As an expert in this field, as a former diplomat, uh, what is your response to that? Is that something that would have been expected by any country to do? Well, you giggled yourself when you said that. Uh, uh, no, no one's going to respond. Micronesia may respond favorably. The Canadians may weigh 
this into their uh, uh, policy. Otherwise, no one is going to take this uh, seriously. And no one is going to take this ser seriously, not only because of the, uh, uh, the scope and the scale of the operation in Gaza. They're not going to take it seriously because Mr. Netanyahu has a credibility uh, deficit in the world. And now when push comes to shove, he's asking uh, France or Norway or, or uh, uh, Japan uh, uh, to be understanding, to be sympathetic. I doubt that is going to work, even though, even though the, uh, uh, the case itself is, is frivolous and nasty. Mm. Um, but, but asking, you know, asking Italy or Argentina to stand up and say that they uh, oppose it, I think is a uh, exercise in futility. Let's move to the other developments in the region. You hinted at uh, increased tensions between the Secretary of State and his visit, I guess, behind closed doors at least, with, with Prime Minister Netanyahu. And a lot of this focus, not so much even on Gaza at this point, but, but on other future hot spots uh, and other fronts that may be opening anytime soon. And we're looking at the north of Israel, southern Lebanon, and the border there with Hezbollah. Uh, you have 80,000 Israelis that have been displaced. That's not sustainable. Israeli politicians have said as much. But they've also said that they want to continue working down the road of diplomacy. Uh, that, that narrative seems to have changed, and uh, the U.S. not as supportive on that front. Talk more about that. True. True. Well, there's an aura of inevitability about a war between Israel and Hezbollah that supposedly is, is not related to the war in Gaza, but the context is the same. And the mentorship and the uh, support coming from Iran, it makes it uh, um, even more explosive and makes it even more uh, dangerous. Now, for the first two, maybe even three months of the conflict, in October and November and into December, the U.S. Uh, physically and politically deterred Iran and Hezbollah by sending the uh, USS Gerald Ford and the USS Dwight Eisenhower, two aircraft carrier strike groups to the region. By the way, the Eisenhower left the, the, uh, the Mediterranean and is in the Gulf, and the Gerald Ford is sailing back to Norfolk, Virginia. So, so that, that, deter that, that was based on the American uh, perception or the American assessment, rather, um, that escalation was averted. Right now, the Americans are saying again that perhaps that is not the case. Iran feels emboldened, as is evident in the uh, um, uh, activities and the scope of activities of the Houthis down in Yemen who are blocking international maritime uh, trade routes. And so right now, what is supposedly a, um, a territorial dispute between Israel and Lebanon on the exact demarcation of the border. Uh, I don't want to, you know, waste your viewers' time. The UN Security Council Resolution 1701 uh, um, uh, said that the, the border is temporary, not, not final. Anyway, so uh, uh, there is this territorial dispute that the U.S. is using to somehow get this uh, diplomatically resolved. But there is an issue here. Um, called Hezbollah. Hezbollah is not Lebanon. Hezbollah is not the, the government of Lebanon. Hezbollah is the most powerful force in Lebanon. Uh, it is not authorized to make uh, a policy, to make uh, um, um, uh, any take any risks or make any compromises. On the other hand, Hezbollah has uh, um, in excess of 30,000 
uh, precise missiles, an arsenal of 140 or 150,000, but 30,000 that are believed to be precise. They can hit any building right behind me if they so choose. And so the Americans are extremely apprehensive because they feel that if, it, 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 um, if the conflict escalates or spreads horizontally, as it's called, uh, um, into Lebanon, this could draw America in because between mm -hmm. Iran fostering this in Lebanon and Iran fostering the Houthis, the U.S. may be uh, dragged into a war. It has zero inclination of being in on a strategic and foreign policy basis. And as you mentioned, and I agree with you, Biana, um, President Biden has no interest in being bogged down in the Middle East as yeah. we near uh, the election in November. Can I ask you, I mean, we, we often hear, and rightly so, from the Israelis that uh, October 7th, that this war with Hamas is not a war that Israel wanted, that it was brought upon them by the horrific October 7th attacks. From your writing, from some of the rhetoric that we're hearing from this government uh, about Hezbollah, does Bibi Netanyahu want a war with Hezbollah in the immediate future? No, but he wants he wants the brinkmanship. He wants to flirt with the war. He wants to create the uh, uh, the sense that there's an ongoing war, that it is multi front, a multi front operation, uh, that this is not about uh, Gaza and and October seventh, but seventh, but this is an uh, um, you know an, a civilizational conflict that there are the forces of Islamo-fascism, this is how he calls it, mm -hmm. and the forces of democracy, and here he is saving Western civilization. He actually believes in this messianic uh, 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 self-image of himself. And so I don't think he wants a war with Hezbollah, but he wouldn't mind the, uh, um, um, the brinkmanship. That's very dangerous because 90% uh, of escalations are a result of miscalculations rather than of deliberate course. policy. And of so this, this, is playing with, uh, this is playing with a lot of fire. At a time, I'm going back to our first topic, or our second topic, at a time when um, the so-called day after Gaza not only has not been resolved, it hasn't even seriously been discussed yet. Um, so he has a vested interest in prolonging this this, this uh, distances him from the debacle of October 7th that prevents widespread demonstrations in Israel demanding that he assume responsibility and that, uh, um, and that distances he released, him even more. And that he do more to release the hostages. And that he do more to release the hostages. Uh, do, do you, uh, as many Israelis feel, do, do you think that this government, the Netanyahu government, is doing everything they can now as we are approaching a day 100 of uh, these more than 100 uh, Israeli hostages that are still remaining in Gaza. Are they doing enough to prioritize their release? Um, the short answer is no. I mean, verbally, they remain committed. Practically, they're not uh, necessarily taking seriously the ideas that are out there. Now, the ideas shifted. There was a time when there was an idea that all, all Palestinian prisoners will be released in exchange for all hostages. Israel said that that's a non-starter. Now, reportedly, there's a Qatari uh, um, effort, and the Qataris have been extraordinarily helpful here. The Qataris have said that there's a, um, a plan that in exchange for a full ceasefire, the hostages will be released. Israel is saying no full ceasefire mm. at this point. So. I'm not saying I'm not saying yeah. it's right or wrong, but you asked whether it's doing everything and the answer is no.
Yeah, that, that, that is unfortunate to hear. And just think about all these families that, that are waiting, waiting desperately for the return of their loved ones. Alon Pincus, always great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bianca. My pleasure. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Well, turning now to the war in Ukraine, Russian missiles hit Kharkiv late Wednesday, destroying a hotel and injuring 11 people, amongst them Turkish journalists. It's yet another reminder of the daily danger faced by Ukrainians as this war approaches two years. President Zelensky is continuing his tour of the Baltic nations in Estonia today and once again reiterating his calls for Ukraine to be admitted to NATO. Whether or not they'll get the support they need from the U.S. remains up in the air. Just look at this clash of opinions between Republican presidential candidates Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis at CNN's debate last night. Russia said once they take Ukraine, Poland and the Baltics are next. Those are NATO countries, and that puts America at war. This is about preventing war. It's an open-ended commitment. They want another $108 billion. They will not tell you uh, when the, the, uh, they have achieved their goal, uh, and this is going to go on maybe hundreds of billions more into the future. I think a lot of people have died. We need to find a way to end this because our priorities for national security, of course, the border, which we talked about, and people like Nikki Haley care more about Ukraine's border than she does about our own southern border, which is wrong. Oksana Markarova is Ukraine's ambassador to the United States. She sat down with Walter Isaacson to discuss this ongoing conflict. Thank you, Biana and Ambassador Makarova. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Walter, for having us. Uh, there's a brutal article in the Wall Street Journal about the trench warfare and after months, how maybe a mile or two is going back and forth. Are we getting into a situation now with this trench warfare where it's almost frozen in place and there's got to be ways to break this deadlock? Well, Walter, I wouldn't call it uh, frozen. It hasn't been frozen since uh, the war started, but also since 2014 when Russia attacked us in the first place. And the trench war has been there since the first day of this war. Russians not only uh, started shelling us with all the missiles and drones, which we continue to see, but also attacked with a very large front. And uh, to be able, frankly, to even keep this long, front line, uh, more than 800 miles, is already achievement uh, beyond a number of militaries. And Ukrainian military has been able not to lose anything. But of course, without additional increased support, without the capabilities, uh, it's going to be difficult to advance. So we can advance. It's not frozen. We can win. But it's all a function of weapons at the moment. And the will to fight is there. It's difficult. It's muddy. It's it's cold. Uh, it's uh, one of the coldest winters. But, uh, you know, if we can get a little bit more weapons, we can move forward. You say that it can't advance with more we without more weapons. And if you get more weapons, maybe you can move forward. Uh, President Zelensky is in the Baltics uh, right now, trying to both raise money and support there. 
What does he hope to get out of those three Baltic nations? Well, President Zelensky has been very clear since the day one of this war and even before. We need all military capabilities. So we needed them before the war to deter Russia from attacking. And we need them now in order to be able to not only successfully defend Ukrainians, defend Ukraine, but also liberate our territories. The number one priority, as President Zelensky said, is air defense. We see how Russians are cooperating not only with Iranians, which is not news for anyone anymore, but with North Koreans and all these missiles uh, that they are shelling the old cities everywhere, residential areas, trying to scare people, trying to uh, spread this virus of uh, despair everywhere, which they will not be able to do. But, you know, the air defense is critical, the, the artillery is critical, the longer range uh, missiles are critical. Everything is critical. Look, we are fighting a much larger enemy. Look at the map. Uh, the country that is not only a nuclear power and uh, member of the Security Council, but the country with much larger population. Yes, unmotivated population that has no idea what they are doing in Ukraine, but still much larger and also equipment. And they're getting help from their uh, friends, the uh, new axis of evil. So. You know, we just have to stay the course and we have to double down and we have to respond with more weapons and we can win. At the beginning of this war, uh, we were hearing about crippling sanctions. It's going to crush the Russian economy. This will do things. Russian economy has grown, grown as much as some of European economies. What happened? How come we don't have crippling sanctions? Walter, we worked on sanctions, as you know, since early 2021 in order to prevent Russia. Uh, from 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 this attack and uh, uh, sanctions were instrumental at the beginning months of the war, uh, but you know first of all these sanctions would cripple probably any democracy. But with autocratic country like Russia, you really have to implement them everywhere, and you have to uh, you have to make sure that other countries uh, which deem themselves neutral are not actually benefiting from the situation and trying to buy even more from Russia. So, for example, the Russian financial sector. Yes, there are dozens of banks which were put on the U.S. full blocking sanctions list, but there are 330 banks in Russia. There is still a lot to go. Now, in a democratic country, when you sanction the majority of the banks, the largest banks, that will have an effect. But in an autocratic country where people in Kremlin can pick up the phone, call even a small bank and say, you are now servicing the Russian military, you have to sanction all of them. And we can go sector by sector and see how much more we still can do. So that's why this is one of the key areas uh, on which we are working together with our American friends and allies. And I want to thank the Treasury and Department of Commerce uh, on, on, on this work. But there is still so much more we can do together. You say that the war cannot really be pursued uh, strongly by Ukraine uh, unless it has more support and much more weaponry. I read uh, a report out of Estonia needed 200,000 artillery shells per month. I don't know if you've seen that to work, which is more than the total capacity of the United States and the West. Do you worry that their supply chains are not going to be uh, supportive? 
Walter, we do not worry, we act. That's why when President Zelensky came here in September, one of the biggest agreements of between him and President Biden was to actually start actively working to have the co-production and to address this issue. And you're absolutely right. You know, we, all of us, democratic countries, were uh, kind of preparing for to defend ourselves, but not really preparing for this aggressive World War One type of trench wars. Uh, and, and this this level of brutality, but it's clear to us now that we have to do it. And uh, Ukraine is already producing a lot of these drones, and Ukraine is already producing a lot of uh, uh, capabilities ourselves. But together, we will be able to address it even even more. And plus, this is an important area for the future rebuilding of Ukraine. You know, because again. It's difficult. The fight is not yet won completely. Uh, there is still a lot of hardship in front of us, but we are positive that we will win. And we already are thinking about how we will rebuild Ukraine after we win. And defense production is going to be one of the key areas in which, in addition to agri and innovation and IT and everything that Ukraine is known for, uh, where Ukraine can offer a lot to the world. The United States uh, has been the major contributor, uh, both in resources and weaponry. I assume there's about maybe a 50% chance at least that that aid gets cut off. What is Ukraine's plan if that happens? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, we're all very grateful to Americans, to American people, to President Biden, to Congress on a very strong bipartisan basis for all the support that we have received. And I have to tell you that I think it's it's less than 50% chance that the aid will be cut off. I travel a lot in the US now, and I feel the support of American people. They, they The country which is based on freedom and bravery understands this fight more than anyone. And the country that realizes that when somebody attacks your home, when somebody attacks your loved ones, what can you do? You can only defend them, you can fight. It's 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 not even a matter of choice. So I'm I'm positive that American people support us, and uh, you know the discussions in Congress are very active. And I understand there are a lot of internal issues. And of course, again, it's normal in a democracy. But we have faith in in American people, and we also have faith in American Congress. So um, you know. Maybe later than we have expected or needed it, but uh, we really hope that Congress will uh, approve the support and that uh, we will have the capabilities and the budget support to continue our efforts. Well, I applaud having faith in the American Congress and hope, but in some ways there's got to be other plans because whether it's a 50% chance or a 20% chance, especially if Trump is reelected and certainly if the Republicans hold Congress, uh, and even the U.S. State Department spokesman said, yes, we want to continue support, but not at the same levels as the past two years. So how are you planning for that, a drawdown or cutoff of U.S. Uh, military assistance? Well, first of all, you know, if you look at the proposed support, which is being discussed, uh, uh, actually, uh, when uh, the spokesman was talking about the decreased support, the budget support, it has been decreasing on a monthly basis since the beginning. And that was the plan, actually. So the, the defense security support is increasing, uh, but the budget support is uh, decreasing because Ukraine is doing a lot in order to develop our own capabilities, in order to restore the economy. And we all hope that 
you know, with more air defense and more people coming back and production picking up and co-production starting, of course, we don't want to be dependent. We want to be self-sufficient. So I wouldn't take it as a negative thing per se. You know, we want to be able to actually fund ourselves and then get the security and other assistance from our partners. Um, but, you know, of course, we're working on uh, look, at the beginning of this uh, horrible invasion in March 2022, we could only depend at the beginning on, on ourselves. It took some time uh, to get the support from our friends and allies. And if let's uh, let's recall those first months when people were guessing how long we will be able to survive three days, one week, two weeks. And uh, we didn't we, we surprised a lot of uh, people in other countries, but we didn't surprise ourselves. You know, this is something we fought for in, during the previous generations. This is something Ukraine voted in 1991. And we defended this choice every time Russia tried to take it away from us. You talked a moment ago about how you weren't really prepared for it being a World War One-like trench warfare going on and on. And now we see things that are breaking that pattern, attacks by Russia, uh, in the western part of uh, Ukraine, and also attacks by Ukraine. And th do you think that there may be a new set of tactics, a shift, instead of just focusing on the trench front? Well, it, it's a bit old tactic for Russia. They just ran out of uh, some missiles, and now they got them from the North Korea. So if you look at the beginning of this uh, uh, full-fledged phase of the war, uh, that's what they started with. They started with massive attack from North uh south and and east with all the troops remember which when which were marching and they got as close to kiev as the outskirts of kiev actually uh, but they also started with massive missiles attacks that's how they have pounded kharkiv and and western ukraine as well from the very beginning then they focused on destroying our energy infrastructure so they have been but but of course you know they continued to shell the civilian and residential areas everywhere they completely destroyed mariupol not only by their uh, ground forces but also by by the missile so it's not something new for them and unfortunately we have to admit you know they are war criminals and there are no road, red lines uh, they will attack hospitals and when we were able to get some people in these prisoner swaps or exchanges we hear horrific stories horrific stories and you know our prosecutor general is investigating more than hundred thousand cases individual cases right now so you just talked about the uh prisoner swaps how did those come about how are those things negotiated and is there some chance that that leads to broader talks i don't know what you what you mean by broader talks if you are referring to uh, you know, some ideas that uh, resurface uh, from time to time that Russia might be ready for some of the discussions, you know. Uh, we clearly have to just listen to Mr. Putin and see or, 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 or the actions they are taking. They intended not change. They are brutally executing genocide in Ukraine. And if they want to stop it. It's very easy. They can stop the war tomorrow. Get out from Ukraine and the war will stop. In Bloomberg and other reports, the group of seven nations, your own allies, keep talking about ways to maybe have peace talks. That oh, makes we are, we are talking about President Zelensky's peace formula, and we're very serious about it. President Zelensky put it forward, and as you know, there are a number of meetings where 
uh, on the level of advisors, which get together and discuss it, and the number of countries which are joining the stocks is growing. And uh, in addition to this uh, formal meetings of the advisors and hopefully soon uh, the summit or at the level of the leaders, which we're working on, there are also daily talks between different countries. And we're very clear, nobody wants peace more than Ukrainians. But let's not mix the real, sustainable, just durable peace which President Zelensky has proposed and we're discussing based on the UN Charter, based on the decisions that the majority of countries already supported, with the operational pause, which Russia needs in order to get more missiles from their friends in North Korea and reinvade or attack. Or- wait, wait, so you're saying that uh, without a full-fledged peace, I know at Davos there'll be discussions of it as well with some of these ministers, there can't be a ceasefire or a truce while trying to pursue such a peace? Uh, well, we tried that before, you know, in 2015. And Ukraine, even though the Minsk Accord were not particularly fair to us, but we did everything possible in order to find a diplomatic solution. And through during eight years, uh, and I remember because in, in my previous capacity as the Minister of Finance, I also worked on it a lot. We tried to do everything possible in order to restore our territorial integrity and, and sovereignty through diplomatic solutions. And what did Russia do? They just used that operational pause to mass all the equipment that they were preparing in order to attack us again. So un- unless and until Russia leaves its criminal intent to invade and attack a neighboring country and destroy us, they are not negotiating in a, in a, in a good face. So, you know, it takes two to negotiate. But Coming back to to the to the uh, prisoner swaps, you know, of course that's a separate line, and we are glad that we had already a dozens of these prisoner swaps. And the last swap, which came after five months of Russia literally blocking the even even the discussions on that, uh, was a big relief to those who were waiting for their loved ones home. And do you think the fact that that was a big relief after five months and the swap happened? is some indication that there might be more of that in the future? Well, we really hope that we can continue the discussions on the prisoners. And we really hope that with other uh, countries that are helping us and with other organizations that we will be able not only to locate our servicemen, but also civilians. And most importantly, most difficult issue is children. Tell me about the relocation of the children. This is, um, frankly, for me, not only as a Ukrainian and a diplomat, but as a mother, is difficult to understand how can anyone even engage in something like this. So from the territories, occupied territories, uh, the Russians have uh, uh, abducted so many children, not only those which were under state care, but also children that have lost their parents during the war or have been even separated with the parents during during this, when Russia was organizing all these filtration camps, you know, like horrific uh, notion that actually brings us back to uh, to the World War II and, and what Nazi were doing, you know. And not only they have taken them into Russia, not only they have changed their own legislation to have the speedy adoptions, but they are moving them everywhere in Russia and putting up for the adoptions. We were able to return just a handful uh, you know, uh, really literally hundreds of Ukrainian kids. 
it's a bit easier with teenagers who at least can, you know, contact and they know and they understand what's going on. But just imagine infants, if they if the infants are stolen. Uh, so right now, uh, it's, it's a big problem because we don't even know the exact number until we liberate all Ukraine uh, of how many uh, kids uh, are taken and stolen by Russians. We have identified at least 20,000 uh, on which the Ukrainian ombudsman and our law enforcement is working. We know where they are, but this is a horrible tragedy. And again, this is one of uh, Putin and his and his clique committed a number of uh, war crimes. But this is the one for which he already is indicted as the war criminal. Madam Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Walter. Thank you very much for spreading information about it because truth is our biggest weapon. Poignant reminder from Ambassador Makarova about the ongoing war in Ukraine. And finally, it's Barbie's world and we're just living in it. Award season has kicked off and Greta Gerwig's top grossing film has taken home the Golden Globe for cinematic and box office achievement, the first of its kind. Millions of fans not only fell in love with the movie's quirky dance scenes and pink aesthetic, but also its feminist message. Here's America Ferreira's iconic monologue about the challenges of being a woman in the modern world. It is literally impossible to be a woman. We have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. And make sure to tune in to the Amanpour Hour with Christiane this Saturday to catch her interview with the one and only America Ferreira, where they'll be talking Barbie core, feminism, the future of cinema, and the importance of representation. And a note, Christiane will also be answering your questions on the show about events shaping our future. So scan the QR code on your screen. You see it right there. Or email askamanpour at CNN.com. The Amanpour Hour airs Saturdays from 11 a.m. on America's East Coast, 5 p.m. in Central Europe, only on CNN. And that is it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online, on our website, and all over social media. Thank you so much for watching, and goodbye from New York. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832, and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.